To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. Yeah, so now the hospital doesn't have to talk about discharge. The hospital can talk about, we're going to take great care of you no matter where you need to be. And, and it's going to become more and more, we're just going to take good care of you in your own home because we're just gonna give you one of these stickers. And if we see something starting to, to something brewing, we can send a nurse to your house cheaper than you laying in the hospital bed. Yeah. Um, or we can see it coming early enough that we can say, okay, go see your doctor. James Malt is many things, all of them insanely impressive. And chances are you've never heard of him just because he's not somebody important like a YouTuber or something, but he is someone who's changing the world of medicine in important ways. Uh, They say that the first person to live to 150 is already alive right now. And if that's true, it'll be because of people like Jim Malt and the changes they're bringing to the healthcare industry. James Malt got his start as a cardiothoracic surgeon, so that's Dr. Malt to you plebs. He went on to serve as the medical director for the Health Solutions Group at Microsoft, later the senior vice president and chief medical officer at Qualcomm. He served on the boards of Bose, the American Telemedicine Association, the Consumer Technology Association, the people who run CES, various uh, NASA organizations. He's worked with SpaceX and along the way founded five different medical device companies, his latest being BioIntelligence, where they're pioneering health monitoring systems that work along with AI to generate real-time health assessments for doctors and hospitals. And it's all done by a tiny sensor that you stick to your chest. It's super interesting stuff, and I'm honored to have gotten to meet him and spend some time with him. In fact, we got so carried away just kind of chatting about random stuff that we got cut off and had to do a second Zoom call. So thank you twice, James, for spending the time with me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. But right now, let's jump into my conversation with James Malt. Did you go to CES? I've never been to CES, no. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It's like I haven't been in so long and, and and now it's almost like I'm a little nervous if I ever win, it would just be too much. Like oh. my hype has been built up too much or something. Your, I don't know. your head will explode. Exactly. Yeah. But you have to go. Okay. And, and you have to come as my guest this next uh uh January. You won't turn that down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're actually setting up a, a VIP event uh for the for the R360 guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that you met yesterday, you know, and, and Chris. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and then we have a VIP event uh, on the healthcare side as well. So, but you, you got to come, especially a, a, a tech guru like your, yourself. Oh, I wouldn't call myself that. I can barely operate my phone. But... <laughs> well, no, but you, you, you know, again. I am in that space, I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. And, and uh, you have a big following and a lot of people... You know, again, I talked to my CTO this morning and told him I was, I saw you yesterday. I'm going to be on with you today. And he's like, he's the dude. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm so the big what Lebowski. Did, what What did you do to to uh, you know? How are you in the in the center of this uh, this whole uh, tech conversation? Um, I I was working at the Dallas Morning News. If you want to hear the whole story, uh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. uh, I was I was an advertising copywriter there, so I wasn't like a, a reporter or anything. But it was it was just kind of a job. And then you know YouTube started really becoming a thing. I had a background in filmmaking and uh, video production and stuff. Never really could get the newspaper to take it seriously, so I could you know kind of do that kind of thing for them. And I just started getting serious about it around 2014. I made sure and posted a video every Monday, and I've just been doing it ever since. And um, it didn't start off as a, as a science communication kind of thing. It started off as just me trying to be funny and be a comedian on, on YouTube kind of thing. Um, and then I, I did one video in the Fermi paradox that for whatever reason, the algorithm liked, and it got a lot of views at the time. It was a lot of views for me. And um, that brought in a lot of subscribe. We're going to be a problem now. Uh, that brought in a lot of subscribers <laughs> that wanted to talk about science stuff. So they were asking me science questions. So I kind of leaned into it because I've always been a bit of a nerd, you know. So, um, you know, I, that's just, yeah, that's just kind of how it happened. It's kind of spiraled from there. Um, I don't have any specific training in it. But like when, when you were saying that your CTO was all excited that you were talking to me, it's kind of like, this is why it's good for me to talk to people like you, because as my channel gets bigger and my head grows accordingly, um, <laughs> it's, it's good for me to talk to people who have an actual resume of doing really cool stuff that I can like lift up in some way. Cause I mean, if, if I've got this exposure that I feel responsible, there's a responsibility to, you know, highlight people that are doing cool things. And yeah, yeah. so here we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not about me, but, uh, we're, we're definitely, uh, in in something that's really cool uh, mm -hmm. that has uh, big implications. You were at the the uh, Go Abundance. Yeah, yeah. Back in January or whenever that was, was early December. January. It was before the holidays. It was December. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. 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 You, it was. I loved your presentation. It was great. Yeah. I, I have fun and uh, and the great thing is it's you know it's all relatable, right? Uh, people people generally get stuff around it's hard to ignore healthcare mm. because it it you can't escape it it's something's happening with your parents or your kid is sick or you've got health issues or you're trying to not have health issues yeah. you know it's all part it's it, it, it's central to the human existence Mm. And, uh, you know, it's so you can usually find a common denominator uh, with almost anyone in a room and and then you just talk about things just like, you know, whether it's flying in an airplane or driving your car or, uh, you know, the 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 change in how we shop and how we bank. Uh, you know, all those things are now very relatable mm -hmm. and you can, you can draw these, these rapid analogies for people to go, oh, I get it. That makes sense. Uh, we used to, <laughs> I was just on a, on a call earlier this morning and it, I'm starting to show my age 
And I said, remember when you used to have to go to a travel agent to to book a flight and you would get a paper ticket that had a four layer, this red carbon. Uh Uh And and both of the people were on the phone looking at me going, no, I don't remember that. Like, well, it was in the 90s. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, really. You were just a kid in the 90s. But yeah, I mean, it's getting to a point where, I mean, my kids have no concept of that. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? You just get on your phone, you you decide where you want to go, you pick the date and you buy your ticket. Uh, There are some times when I think about things like that and it's like, how did we do this before smartphones? Like, how did... How did the world, how did we do this? And it's like, oh yeah, we had travel agents. You would go and, yeah. and go to a person and they would have to make a ticket for you. Well, even, even if you ignore the whole travel agent thing, think about the cost structure of, of a United Airlines mm-hmm. where if there were 50 of us that wanted to book a flight in the next five minutes, we would call an 800 number and they would have to pay a human being on the other side of that that mm-hmm. phone mm-hmm. to talk to us and for us to tell them yeah i want to go to dallas i need to go tomorrow and i want to fly at noon and so you know 50 t- tickets being booked in the same 5 minutes requires the the work effort of 50 individuals yeah and now five thousand of us could be booking a ticket simultaneously in the same single minute and united airlines isn't paying a single person to Mm -hmm. book that ticket and take your money because you used to have to give them your credit card information and everything right that's like gone and yet, you know, dovetailing into healthcare, we're still paying a nurse right now because of the nurse labor shortage. The nurse, nurse traveling nurses are being paid an average of over $4,000 per week. I was just reading something about this, about the traveling nurses kind of filling in the gaps and how they obviously get paid more because they're, you know, special, but... Uh, yeah, sorry, I keep talking. I just, I'll just yeah. say something about that. No, and, and it's, and it's, it's, it's crushing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the workforce obviously is, is contracting. Uh, nurses in particular are, you know, understandably burned out yeah. from the COVID crisis. And so hospitals and that's not just hospitals, but nursing homes and and anywhere where someone is sick enough that they need a person checking on them and monitoring them their their only option is to pay these traveling nurses basically a staffing service Mm -hmm. and because the demand is so high (laughs) and the prices are just going up and up and up and and you know the reality is you're, you're, you can only accomplish so much with a one-to-one human uh, interaction, what we call synchronous care, or, or to put it in more general terms, synchronous services, period, whether it's the travel industry 
or the banking industry. I mean, again, it wasn't that long ago where you had to go to a bank to deposit <laughs> your paycheck mm-hmm. and there you'd stand in line because there were only three bank tellers, right? <laughs> and you had to wait to go up to the bank teller and say, hey, I'm depositing my check and I would like $100 in cash back and you'd sign the deposit slip. Who does that now? Uh, I mean, it's this thing called direct deposit. And now, even if I get a check in the mail, I get my phone out, I take yeah. a picture of the check and it gets deposited. And so healthcare is literally one of the last bastions of the old service model that's been in existence for 2000 years in healthcare. In 2000 years, if you were if you were sick, you would see the doctor and the doctor would examine you and make a diagnosis and then a treatment recommendation. And up and, until about 150 years ago, just uh, take your blood, just bloodletting. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, well. Let the demons out and, and balance the humors and yeah. Digression, do you know that the, the uh, loved and adored first president of the United States, George Washington, mm-hmm. people don't know that, but our first president of the United States did not die of natural causes. It was all the bloodletting? He was assassinated. Oh, okay. All right. Keep going. This just got spicy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was assassinated by his doctors. Now, are you are you saying on purpose or like just from? No, no. Okay, okay, okay. okay. But the, the you just you talked you just mentioned it the mm-hmm. the the modern therapy of that era was bloodletting. Yeah. Literally, he had a pneumonia. And they said, oh, we need to bleed a liter of blood. And he got worse. Oh, he needs more bloodletting. <laughs> they ended up, they, they, somebody pulled up the records. They, they, they basically exsanguinated him yeah. to the tune of almost four liters of blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of sad, but uh, yeah. the reality. <laughs> but anyway. They forgot uh, that the blood is important. He needs well, some. Then, hey, the as you heard in my in my talk in in December, it wasn't until the mid 1800s that anyone had any clear understanding of germ theory. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and uh, you know, anesthesia, X-rays, all of those things only happened in the last less than 150 years ago. Mm. Um, it's fascinating. I, I've, I've covered that here and there, especially in the Victorian days and the whole Jon Snow cholera outbreaks in uh, in London, figuring that all that out and everything. Anyway, well, the, that, that's all. Oh, I, I have to tell you one other interesting story. You, you feel free to edit this stuff out, but it's really fun. <laughs> it's, it, I love it, tangents. I have a whole camera for it. it at least it's uh, interesting for it for party uh, uh, <laughs> trivia. Um, a lot of people who go to medical school, uh, get those diplomas, uh, get almost indignant when like walking up to a, 
checking in at a hotel and they say, you know, welcome, Mr. Malt. And some of these people, not me, I'll tell <laughs> you why. They go, oh, well, it's Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Smith. And I was like, okay, dude, you're pretty, yeah. you know, pretty Congratulations. Impressive. Congratulations. So, but for me, it turns out that it's actually a compliment. And uh, the history is in the, in the uh, dark ages, during the great plague, the physicians, the educated anointed ones had no interest in taking the risk of exposing themselves to patients with the plague. Mm -hmm. So it was actually the, at the time they were called barbers. Right. It was the barbers who actually put their lives at risk and took care of all these people dying of the plague. And at the end of the plague, after a third of the population had been killed or had died, um, I think it was King, one of the King George or King Henry, one of the two, uh, actually bestowed the honorary title of Mister to the barbers of that era. Huh. And to this day, in the British uh, medical system, when you graduate from medical school, you obviously receive the title of doctor. Uh-huh. But if, if you train as a surgeon, there's a, when you finish your training as a surgeon, there's actually a, a ceremony to appoint you the title of mister. Now that is new. I've not heard that before. So as a cardiac surgeon, uh, I'm always happy and proud to be called mister. <laughs> Yeah. I, the the fact that the the barbers used to be um almost like a dock in a box right like like people could go in with broken bones and even get some dental work done and stuff with with the barbers barbers were the were the you know basically the predecessors of the modern surgeons right yeah uh, yeah and and the barbers were the doers they were the ones that would try to fix whatever is wrong with you. The, the physicians were the intellectuals. They were the, uh-huh. they were the, the di- diagnosticians right. and the researchers and things like that. They, they, the, 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 there's always now in, in modern times a, a rivalry between the surgeons and the, the physicians. Uh-huh. And, uh, but uh, I wonder, it's did, did the term barber come from the fact that they used barbs to, to like bloodlet or something? That just I occurred to me. I don't know the origin of the, of the term barber. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have to research that. I'll have to, yeah, I don't, I don't have a, an assistant here to like look it up for me, but yeah. uh, I just, I suddenly thought of that. That's interesting. Um, well, so, okay. So, so you were a surgeon for a while. Let's, let's just go to like, let's hear your history here. So, so you were a surgeon. I assume you still are, but are you still practicing surgeon or? No, I have not operated okay. uh, uh, for uh, now 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I miss it terribly, but uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll give you the quick and dirty background. Uh, cool. grew, grew up uh, as a kid in, in Cleveland, Ohio. 
dreamed of being an astronaut someday and and we'll there's the connection there with the rockets and Actually, i was gonna i was gonna test my nerd knowledge real quick so you got a redstone atlas titan saturn 1b saturn 5 and sls wow I have, wow. I have earned my stripes in nerddom. <laughs> all right. All right. So the then, Titan was always my favorite, actually. I just think it's a beautiful vehicle. Then if you want and to keep going. Command module and then a command lunar module, space shuttle. Yeah. There's something else over there, but I can't make out what it is. Oh, no. That's just some awards. Oh, okay. And then the <laughs> oh, this some awards. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I'm impressed. I'm so impressed. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that, uh, a, a whole nother story. But you, you met Charlie Duke last night. From yeah, college. briefly. Yeah, that was really cool. What a class act. And so uh, it's, it's another tangent, but I, I sit on the board of trustees of something called the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. Right. OK. And, I was wondering uh, how you knew him. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've been involved with that for quite some time uh haven't haven't made it to space yet but it's on my list <laughs> clearly uh now back in the uh category of of uh must do instead of uh -huh. dreaming about it but okay so would would you rather go up on virgin galactic or blue origin oh only spacex oh okay all right so you want to go orbital orbital is for me only way to go the 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 true uh true uh, achievement of space flight right yeah yeah you're, you're, yeah. Not, you're not you're not legit until you get into orbit i won't use the legit <laughs> you're like let me back off of that a little bit i don't, I don't want to but i would say you, you were with i will quote an, an, an astronaut that you and I spent time with yesterday, <laughs> uh, former astronaut, uh, but uh, he would ascribe an exciting plane ride to those first two. Those suborbitals? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's when you look at Alan Shepard's first mm -hmm. flight in space, it was 110 nautical miles uh and it was a 20 minute 20 minute flight uh he had 10 minutes of weightlessness uh but you can achieve weightlessness just from a parabolic uh yeah. flight trajectory yeah. right we we actually have planes that fly parabolic so you know the the uh uh the vomit comet vomit comets exactly <laughs> have you ever been on one I have not. I have been on a jet fighter and I've done uh, parabolic uh, mm -hmm. weightless trajectories on the jet fighter, okay. done barrel rolls. I had a blast. That sounds I, like a bombing comment. Yeah, it was it was one of the definitely one of the my top 10 adrenaline experiences. Sure. I actually got invited to do um, I mean, they didn't call it the bombing comment. They called it zero zero this one's what's there's zero g anyway they they there's a commercial company that does it outside of uh, vegas i believe and um i got invited to do that for some national geographic promotion or something and i listened to the wrong people because they weren't paying for it i mean i didn't have to pay for it but they weren't like paying me to do it so some i listened to somebody that was like no don't do it if they're not going to pay you and i'm like oh okay and then 
And then I didn't do it. And I've regretted it ever since. Cause it was like, ah, oh, I've always wanted to do that. What was I thinking? So that was a really dumb decision. Uh, on my part. Well, if you're still interested, I, I can arrange that. <laughs> There's a, Charlie's doing one with a bunch of people from, you know, we do these uh, fundraisers, right? Mm. For the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. So he's actually doing a, a uh, zero G uh, plane ride with a couple of the, the donors for the Astronaut yeah. Scholarship Foundation. Uh, you know, at 86 years old, so pretty, pretty, like, pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyways, I grew up in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, wanted to be an astronaut until I got glasses. And back in my day, you had to have perfect vision. Uh -huh. And uh, so I uh, it took me a year to get over my dream of being an astronaut and figured if I couldn't be an astronaut, then maybe I'll be a heart surgeon. And uh, <laughs> Uh, went to yeah, my. You have some pretty good ambitions there. <laughs> went to my town doctor. It was a small town. There was one doctor, mm -hmm. and he said, and I was in seventh grade, and he said, "Your timing is so perfect. We're starting this thing called a athletic trainer program for our football team, the high school football team." Mm -hmm. He said, if you're interested in being a doctor, uh, I, I'll set you up in these, these graduate courses in sports medicine. Uh, it was a summer class. And I said, sure, that sounds great. So I took this summer class and I got to dissect cadavers and, and uh, go to the operating room. And I was just sold. That, that, wow. This is this is. This is really, really exciting and fascinating. And uh, so I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, uh, shortened my high school by one year, combined my junior and senior year of high school and went to Ann Arbor, Michigan for college. And um, I've always been a gadget geek and I, I was pretty entrepreneurial. So I even started a little I was into woodworking and I started a little furniture making company when I was in junior high school. So I was always, <laughs> you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So I was always looking for ways to, to be able to buy a new bike and yeah. add a paper route, all that. So uh, when I went to college, unfortunately, my, my first day of college, uh, my father had a, had a bad heart attack and, and, and died. Oh, wow. And so I was, 17 and uh, suddenly on my own financially and had to figure out how to help support my mom and pay for school. And so I walked across the street from my dorm into the university hospital in Ann Arbor, knowing that I wanted to be a surgeon someday. I figured I'd get a job uh, somewhere in that hospital mm -hmm. and walked up and down the halls to uh, um, to find anybody who might be willing to give some 17 year old kid, uh, a, a job and, uh, and just remarkably, I was able to, uh, run into what unknowingly was one of the most, uh, prolific, surgeon entrepreneurs of the 20th century oh wow and uh yeah so 
it's uh, I'll show you a little picture here. There's a a guy in the, by the name of Bob Bartlett. Oh, oh you know. need to share your screen. Do you want me to? Uh, is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, I was, but I don't have to. Well, I just need to give you permission real quick. Um, there we go. Should be able to now. Let's see. There we go. So there's a picture of me, uh, uh, 19 years old. Uh -huh. uh, and this is, so this guy invented a number of things. Uh, the, the most well-known is, well, there's several that are well-known, but the, the most dramatic is something called ECMO, which is a, a, a heart-lung bypass system uh, that would rescue newborn babies who were essentially dying at the time of delivery from lung failure. And now that system called ECMO is universal therapy worldwide has saved tens of millions of lives. And, wow. uh, you know, his original device is in the Smithsonian Institution. So I was really lucky to have a mentor and a, a second father, basically, who mm. took me under his wing and was very inspiring and full of energy. And, you know, obviously uh, allowed me to be able to have a job, uh, um, you know, to pay for school and, and so forth. And that's what got me, you know, building new things and gadgets for healthcare. And my job was working in the intensive care unit around all of these monitors and technology. I mean, it's the ICU is the ultimate technology playground. Uh, it's got everything imaginable. And you learn all the physiology and all the medications. And, and so it was, it was a very rapid uh, immersion course mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, life and death uh, decisions and monitoring. And, and I was just, I was just all in. Um, worked 40 hours a week and went to school full time and, and uh, started publishing papers and, and then uh, got into medical school, um, created my first company uh, as an undergrad and, and it was a, a guy who is an engineer. I, I'm not an engineer, but I had uh, some really interesting ideas that all were derived out of the stuff I was doing in the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. uh, it was like, hey, we could build this and found somebody to build it. And then we ended up licen licensing it to a medical device company and, uh, and got paid. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is good. Uh, this, you know, pays for college and a sports car and, you know, a, a few other things and um, help, help support my mom. So it became this kind of thesis that I could be an entrepreneur, you know, and pay the bills and do some cool stuff and then you know, go to medical school and be a doctor and be a surgeon. And so I had this parallel life mm -hmm. in, in clinical medicine and in business. And, and one kind of informed the other. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. And, and it, I, I 
tell you, even to this day, when I, when I, you know, just like on Monday, it was a, a lecture that I gave to uh, a big audience of undergrads and grad students and medical students at Stanford, their health leadership uh, seminar. And, you know, there's such power in having that clinical experience at the bedside and understanding the the need mm. and then being able to go on the other side and you know find people that can build an idea that you might have for solving that need over on the clinical side yeah so then i went to duke to do my surgical residency and trained as a general surgeon uh trauma critical care cardiac surgery and then I did thoracic oncology, uh, which is basically lung cancer mm. and esophageal cancer. And I did thoracic transplant, heart and lung transplants. Mm. And uh, so was there anything being an actual doctor and surgeon that that drove you to do more of the, the entrepreneurial things like the, the gadgets that you were building? Like, was there oh. were, were there just all these like human stories that made you be like, oh, my God, we have to find a solution for this because this is ridiculous. People are dying for things that they don't need to be dying from that kind of thing. Well, you know, it was happening every day uh, mm -hmm. and, and it was just so obvious to me because we would do these big operations uh, and. Mm -hmm you know, open somebody's chest and take a heart out and put a new one in or a lung out and put a new one in, close them up, bring them into the intensive care unit. You'd have all these monitors and incredible data. It's the data that yeah, helps yeah. you see what's going on and be able to, you know, keep them, keep them alive and get them better. And then they would get out of the intensive care unit and have still have monitors and nurses. And then that magical day comes, sometimes only five days after their operation. And you'd walk into the room and you'd say, good news, it's time for dad to go home. And the family would go, what? What, what did he just say? <laughs> you go, yeah, dad's ready to go home. And they go, not a chance. We're, what do you mean? You know, we'll go, oh, it's okay. We, we've got a list of things here. You know, just watch for, for this and this and this and this. And the family's just panicking. Sure, yeah. And, and you know yourself, the moment this person leaves the hospital, we're going to have no idea what's happening to them. Mm. Zip, zero, none. And that's not good care, right? We just yeah. opened your chest five days ago. So every day that we sent somebody home, it was always, let's cross our fingers and hope that they do okay, because we're not going to know unless they show back up in the emergency room with a badass complication. And so this whole idea of, gosh, why can't we keep an eye on them once they leave the hospital. And so I started yet another company um, in 1998. And this was very, very early in the world of healthcare and technology. And 
it was using this thing called a palm pilot <laughs> they, they were they were the thing for a while there they were i mean when you talk about uh, you know digital health and a lot of it became a buzz phrase mobile health m health right mm. well it, it it all started with some of the things that we were doing on the palm pilot and making it possible for data to be captured on this handheld device and in that time you had a docking station remember and mm -hmm. you, you'd then synchronize your palm with your desktop computer and then there's this really cool thing called the internet <laughs> and and the internet was a place where you could send the data up to a, a an application that could then be logged into by doctors and nurses to be able to see what's going on with hundreds and thousands of people uh, who have a, a Palm Pilot. And, uh, you know, wow, that was pretty, pretty earth shaking. Um, and uh, we launched that company and, and it did some really, really fun uh, pioneering things with it. Um, so what I'm looking at here, it, it shows, um, okay, so that's something different, but the Palm Pilot, yeah. So it's, it looks like a, almost like a calorie exercise tracker kind of thing. This isn't like something people wear. This isn't a wearable not yet. tracking nope, device. Nope. Yeah, you're not there yet. Yeah, and so this was able to collect data that was entered. Uh, we were doing nutrition and we had a system for diabetes and, and mm -hmm. diabetes management uh, of people that could keep track of their glucose and and their nutrition intake and so forth, and then share that with their doctor, uh, a nurse or fitness trainer. And uh, it was really the beginning of the, what we call connected care, mm -hmm. remote monitoring, digital health. Um, and then from that, we ended up developing a, uh, a again, this was before tablets and, and smartphones, so it was an internet appliance. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, you could connect this device to your phone line and it had a built-in 14.4 baud modem and it would dial up the internet. <laughs> so you would get that. Going on. Can't we? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was yeah. my impression of a modem for everybody listening. Was... <laughs> this All the is kids the, are like, what's that sound? The, the 20 year journey of digital health. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, and this device would dial up the internet in the middle of the night and it would identify the serial number of the device, which would be assigned to a particular individual and then based on that individual, uh, their condition, it would download a heart failure program or a diabetes program. And so when you got up in the morning, there was a set of questions waiting for you each morning. How do you feel today? And this was engineered by IDEO. Have you ever heard of IDEO? I don't think so. They're really, really well-known, quite revered, um, uh, engineering shop 
uh, in Palo Alto. And uh, they're famous for having engineered the first Macintosh mouse for Steve Jobs. Oh, okay. And it turns out they were also the design engineers for Donna Dubinsky and Jeff Hawkins in creating the first Palm Pilot. <laughs> in fact, they were the ones that introduced me to, to Palm and we ended up being the only company to ever have our own private labeled Palm Pilot. Oh, cool. Um, so they engineered this so that it had a big display, at least for those days, and four four buttons that you could you could uh, hit with an arthritic knuckle. Just make it as simple as possible. Make it as simple as possible, and they would ask you, you know, three or four questions, and then that data would flow back up to a dashboard and allow a nurse to be able to see, you know, five hundred patients and red, yellow, green, because you could assign, if somebody said good, and do you have any swelling in your legs? No. Do you have any shortness of breath? No. Uh, are you taking your medications? Yes. Those answers would all get categorized green. So if somebody was all green, you know, they don't need my attention today. So you could have a dashboard, uh, what we call exception management, and and be able to have one nurse monitoring 500 people all the same day because you already know which ones are having a problem versus which ones aren't. And then there's probably 20 who might need some attention. So that's where you could spend your time on a phone call um, and be much smarter about, about that precious resource Mm -hmm. that's that healthcare professional. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, where healthcare is going, it's, it's, it's not an either or proposition. It's, it's really an opportunity to use technology to be able to, you know, with a wearable sensor, be able to capture this really rich data uh, without any effort on the part of the patient, what we call passive monitoring, and, and it has to be medical grade, uh, you know, FDA in, in, in our country, uh, because we're going to be making really sometimes life and death decisions. But then all that data can flow back uh, into a dashboard and allow for those exception management decisions to be made. And then, you know, you you can do what we call care traffic control and have basically closer, better monitoring of someone in any setting, whether it's in the hospital or at home. And this is really all about delivering care, you know, into the home rather than you having to go to care. Yeah. And, and now, just last week, uh, a McKenzie report came out and concluded that $265 billion worth of healthcare is going to be moving from the hospital to the home setting just in the next three years. And it's wow. all because of this capability with, with uh, a wearable medical grade sensor such as ours.
Hey, Joe here. So I hope you're enjoying this chat with James Malt. I know there was some mind-blowing stuff to me anyway, but then again, I'm interested in this kind of stuff, which is why when I was given the opportunity to produce an original series for Nebula, I went and looked at the human body. And because I'm a little bit of a freak, I went with the weird stuff. And that is how my series, Mysteries of the Human Body, was born. I was curious, like, what are the rarest and weirdest diseases of all time? And the flip side of that, why are there some diseases that are super common, but for some reason we still can't cure? I wondered about famous human oddities and what made them that way, and weird plagues throughout history, and why we age the way we do. So I made some videos on those things, and now they're all on Nebula. That along with all the videos from my YouTube channel that are ad-free right alongside with tons of other amazing educational YouTubers that I've been fans of for years, and I gotta say, it's, it's a nice little feather in my cap, honestly, to have my stuff up there alongside these people. Uh, Nebula is basically a curated list of some of the most awesome, smart YouTube content free of any algorithms or advertising, and you can get free access to Nebula when you sign up for CuriosityStream. If you haven't checked out CuriosityStream by now, it's the streaming service for curious minds, which is why I imagine if you're listening to this, you are uh, right up there with the CuriosityStream uh, audience. It's, it's, it's got to be your thing, right? Uh, CuriosityStream has thousands of documentary films from some of the best filmmakers from all around the world on just about any topic you might have interest in, science, art, engineering, history, and yes, healthcare. So if you enjoy exploring the cutting edge of the future of healthcare, like we're talking about here today, there's an excellent episode of the Dream the Future series narrated by Sigourney Weaver on the medicine of the future, where they talk about advancements in medicine and how these advancements will shape the way we live in the year 2050. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, the good news is you can get both of these amazing platforms for only $14.79. That is for an entire year for two streaming services, which is just bonkers. I still can't believe it's such a good deal. I did the math. It's like it's like 62 cents per month per streaming service. So unless you can find a service that actually pays you to watch it, I don't think you're going to find a better deal out there. So yeah, to get all that, just go to curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. Again, that's curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. And you can start the process of wondering why you waited so long to sign up for this in the first place, which is going to happen, I promise. So one more time, it's curiositystream.com slash joescottpod. Go check it out, and thanks to CuriosityStream for supporting this podcast. Now back to Jim. We got there. Okay. <laughs> so there's, right. actually, there's actually two oh, different God. of these, right? So there's this one, and then there's one that has like two, like there's like a... Yeah, little... call it a, a, a dumbbell. Okay, a little... yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So what's the difference between these two? Yeah, so we started with the bio sticker, um, and stickers are kind of we grow up with them they're friendly they're non-threatening uh, <laughs> sometimes we get in trouble if we put them on the wall when we're a kid um, but it's sort of like a band-aid uh, you know a, a three-year-old to an 83 year old that's not much effort and it doesn't take a lot of training so so we want to get to a place where it was as simple as what we call stick it on and forget it sure. And so the first device, the bio sticker, uh, is, is, has a bigger battery, basically. So the, okay. the battery compartment on one end, and then all the sensors are on the other end. And so this is measuring temperature and heart rate and respiratory rate and, and body position and step strength and all sorts of cool stuff. There's some big advantages to being on the chest versus out on the wrist. Yeah. Uh, out on the wrist is not where you reliably measure somebody's body temperature or 
frankly, even analyzing their gait, you can't tell if I'm walking or sitting, or you can't tell if I've if I took a step with my left leg versus my right leg, but we can, because we're on the vertical axis of the human body. So we can actually see when you take a step to the left and to the right. Okay. So you can like and measure people's gates a little bit as they're walking? Literally, yeah. We yeah. can actually measure what's called the gait symmetry. Uh -huh. So we can see if somebody has, has a bad right hip or a bad left knee. And if they have knee surgery, we can see them hopefully getting better over time because oh, cool. their, their gait gets stronger and their cadence. So it's really cool. We're able to measure stuff, you know, in a very accurate way that's never been measured before. So the bio sticker uh, essentially has more battery power to be able to make very high frequency measurements. Um, and then, but it's a little bit bigger, right? It's, it's not terribly big, but but we got to a place where we needed to have something that was smaller, sleeker, thinner. Mm -hmm. And you know, by doing so, it has a little bit smaller battery. Uh, so it's still making all the same measurements. Uh, they both last for 30 days, but the biosticker is measuring heart rate and respiratory rate every minute. This is measuring heart rate and respiratory rate every 15 minutes, yeah. which is still really frequent. Sure. Uh, but uh, it's not as statistically high frequency as the bio sticker. Okay. So that's about it. Uh, oh, and the other difference is this is a single use disposable. So when you start talking about medical stuff, uh, for better or worse, uh, in, in the United States in particular, hospitals like to just throw stuff away. Um, uh, but the good news is this guy is more uh, environmentally uh, uh, appealing because we actually re recycle these. And, yeah. and in, a, in an environment of a chip shortage uh, right now, it's nice to be able to recycle those chips, sure. clean it, put a new battery in and, and send it back out. So, so these, are they not recyclable or, or uh, rechargeable? No, that one is not. Oh, okay. We do, we do have, we haven't announced it yet, uh, <laughs> but uh, ooh, an exclusive, an exclusive. There, there is a rechargeable ooh. version of the bio button that uh, is uh, uh, about to be announced. Cool, cool. Yeah. So, um, so okay, so there seems to be two different use cases for this. And I'd like to hear you talk about both of them a little bit, but like there's, there's the, the medical one where you've been released from the hospital and doctors can kind of monitor you and keep track of you. And the other one, I guess, is just for like personal monitoring and you can sync it up with your phone and keep track of stuff. Um, like what, how would you describe that second use case? Like the personal one, like what's, what's the benefit of that? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of this, this very big spectrum. So we'll start over here on, the what we call the high acuity turns out we have fda clearance for in-hospital monitoring and um, this is a very very vivid scenario right now because there's a a, a, a workforce shortage uh, yeah. especially for nurses nurses uh, a lot of them are burned out from covid and so it's getting very very expensive 
to find nurses and 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 the salaries have gone way up. So right now there's a Wall Street Journal article just a few days ago, the average cost for a traveling nurse staffing services is over $4,000 per week for a staff nurse. And so, you know, typically outside of the intensive care unit, if you're in a hospital bed, the nurse is coming around and taking a set of vital signs, maybe at the most uh, every four hours, uh, but typically it's every six hours. Sometimes it's spread out to every eight hours. So at the most you're getting six measurements per day as a patient, uh, it might be four or it might be three. Uh, and that's, if the nurse is doing that on 20 patients, that's, that's kind of a busy day. Um, so you're talking about $1,000 to take vital signs six times on 20 patients. This sticker is measuring those vital signs 1,440 times per day for $2 per day. Wow. So we have a whole lot of hospitals very interested in putting a sticker on people as they're coming into the hospital or even in the emergency room. And when you think about it, because of the data frequency, 1,440 measurements per, per day of temperature, of heart rate, of respiratory rate, we're able to apply these analytics tools and we could see what's happening to these patients which with much higher resolution. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like having a 4K movie of a patient versus six snapshots, right? <laughs> I'm, it, it's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's, it's kind of better care for more people at a fraction of the cost. And so that's on the inpatient side. And then what's cool is uh, we can watch and say, hey, we've got so much high frequency data, it's pretty obvious this patient is really stable. You probably don't need to be laying in a hospital bed, send them home. Mm. And so you're starting to see an opportunity because of the data, we can be smarter about when to send somebody home and you, you send them home with the same sticker. So because again, it's, it's very rational if if you have nothing no way of monitoring somebody after they leave the hospital then you have to keep them longer because you're worried that something bad is going to happen if you send them home too soon yeah. and you have no way of keeping an eye on them so now this lets you off the hook essentially and the families as well because when you go to a family you say hey it's time to take dad home the family goes what? <laughs> Can't dad stay another day? Because we don't want to be responsible for for you know something going bad. Yeah, they're, so they're looking at all the machines and being like, I've got to be all those machines now. And I yeah. don't know how to operate all that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a big burden on the family. So you're gonna see it becoming much easier. These boundaries are gonna kind of fade away. And, you know, the, 
being in the hospital versus discharge. It's like this word discharge, it's kind of a, uh, you know, an unpleasant term, you know, <laughs> yeah. you've been discharged, go away, we're yeah, done yeah. with, right? Or, or your body produces a discharge, that's not good either. It's <laughs> yeah. all kinds of bad references there. Yeah, so now the hospital doesn't have to talk about discharge. The hospital can talk about, we're going to take great care of you, no matter where you need to be. And, and it's going to become more and more, we're just going to take good care of you in your own home because we're just going to give you one of these stickers. And if we see something starting to, to something brewing, we can send a nurse to your house cheaper than you laying in the hospital bed. Yeah. Um, or we can see it coming early enough that we can say, okay, go see your doctor, right? In, you know, but don't go to the emergency room because that, that, that's unnecessary because mm -hmm. it's, it's not a, it's not a, a crisis yet. We, we want to be able to see this stuff before it's an emergency. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's why this is so exciting. Yeah. And so this applies to so many things. You know, when you go home from surgery, you're going to go home with a sticker. Uh, whether you had a knee operation, we'll be able to see that you're, you're walking better and your gait is better. Uh, if you're a cancer patient, we talked about it, you're, you're, you're going to be able to see somebody developing a, a, a fever. If you're a heart patient, we can monitor your heart. Um, but then we start talking about, you know, just employer wellness programs. And, and a lot of companies spend a significant amount of money on these, on these uh, health risk assessments or, mm -hmm. or screening programs. We do a once a year screening program. Even when you go to see your doctor for an annual visit, your doctor's gonna have, if you're lucky, 20 minutes with yeah. you. That's not a lot of time to be able to see some subtle things that are going on. So what's gonna happen is you're gonna get a sticker in the mail a month before your doctor's visit and you'll wear it for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then there's this 20 page report that's gonna get a printout. You'll get a copy and your doctor will get a copy. And now it's sort of like, I love this analogy, we all, have cars and now when you take it to the dealer to the shop to get your car you know maintenance mm -hmm. what are the what does the mechanic do well they plug it into the computer <laughs> and they run a 78 point analysis and oh, so so right here ma'am it looks like your alternator <laughs> your alternator is going to fail in a couple yeah. of months so we should replace that um so now you'll go into your doctor's office. Your doctor will have this printout of, of how you breathe, how your heart's working, how you're moving, how you're sleeping, how you're walking, and you know, be able to say, mm, you know what, we're starting to see some early issues here. Yeah. Is that the second person that I've heard make the car analogy? And it's so apt because like we, we spend far more time and effort and thought into maintaining our cars than we do ourselves. It's sad. Yeah. It's true. And uh, we have a dashboard with a little light that comes on when there's something wrong. We don't really have anything like that. 
Uh, I mean, I guess that's what this is. This is attempting to be. So that's exactly right. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's also in a serious way part of the problem when you say we we don't do that for ourselves, but we do it for our car. Part of it is because you know we make healthcare inaccessible. Mm. You know, it, it's it's complicated. The whole system sucks. And it's expensive to see your doctor and then get your insurance to pay for it. So there's a lot of disparities in access to healthcare and and the cost. This is kind of the the universal, you know, leveling the playing field. So we can we can make it very easy for everyone to have really high quality care at a low cost. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think you're going to see this is, this is this remote monitoring, and medical grade wearables are, are going to be a very important uh, democratization uh, of healthcare. And, and it's pretty exciting to be at the front of this. Yeah, that's cool. You mentioned uh, insurance companies a second ago, I was curious how, um, you know, having something like this that you can wear, whether you just got out of the hospital or not, um, how that would impact insurance rates? Like if, oh, well, it's, you know, I mean, again, you can go back to the automotive uh, analogy. Right. If you get in your car and you're, you're willing to have a sensor in your car that shows your ability to, you know, drive safely and you're not speeding and you're not braking hard and there's this self-braking sensor so it'll keep the car from crashing it the auto insurance costs have gone down now have they reduced the premiums they're probably keeping a lot of that money but we know that with self-braking cars the 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 number of auto accidents is definitively going down so when it comes to healthcare, the the more we're in, and actually this is very vivid, Medicare itself, the federal government, which now, as an aside, is is paying fifty percent of all healthcare expenditures in the United States. Are covered by Medicare, so oh, the wow. government is now the largest insurance uh, payer. Um, you know, there's the commercial payers, but it's now 50/50. So the government started reimbursing for our stickers and remote patient monitoring last year, and to the tune of the potential eligible reimbursable population right now. Uh, amounts to over thirty billion dollars of of uh, you know opportunity, if you will, for patients to get monitoring paid for by Medicare. So the insurance companies are quickly figuring out that this kind of thing will help keep people out of the emergency room because of down, yeah, and that lowers costs. And then if we can get people out of the hospital sooner and safer, that lowers cost. And this also allows you to keep monitoring somebody after they've left the hospital so that they don't boomerang back. It's called a readmission. 
so all of those are hundreds of billions of dollars of costs that, you know, if you say we'll spend 30 billion on this and we'll save 100 billion on ER visits and readmissions, the ROI is, is a no-brainer. Yeah, that's wild. So the commercial payers are figuring this out as well, and they're starting to reimburse for remote monitoring. Yeah. I mean, it'll get to a place very quickly where, you know, when your kid has a sore throat and a fever, the last thing you want to do is take your kid to the pediatrician sitting in a waiting room with 20 other sick kids. <laughs> yeah, coughing and sneezing. Because if your kid's not sick, you're going to create a nice opportunity for them to get. <laughs> they're about to be. Yeah. They're about to be. So, you know, the future state, which is only probably two or three years from now, mom's just going to have a sticker in the, in the pantry. And when anyone in the family feels sick, you throw on the sticker, and then that data is going to go to a nurse case manager and your doctor. They'll get paid uh, to keep an eye on you remotely you don't have to get in the car and sit in a waiting room and and they're delivering great care mm -hmm. yeah no, it's, this it's, is this this is awesome I, I just think this is really cool because i've the older i've gotten the more i've been um i guess cognizant that like the earlier you fix a problem the less problem it becomes and the easier it is and the less expensive it is health wise or anything else for that matter. So this is, yeah. this is really cool. Okay. So, so just, um, we're starting to get a little short on time. So I want to kind of get this out there. So it monitors heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, hold that thought. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, steps. So maybe calories burned kind of thing. So it's, I'll give you the whole list. So yeah, yeah. Let's hear the list. Temperature, uh, okay. which is a, a, a key measurement for all sorts of reasons. Heart rate, respiratory rate. And the respiratory rate one is interesting. That's hard. Most nurses don't really measure respiratory rate, even in the hospital, because it's it's pretty subtle to see each time you take a breath, even sitting here uh, on the camera. And so nurses and doctors- <laughs> I'm all aware of it now. <laughs> we're, we're all, yeah, we're all uh, guilty of it, but we tend to write down 16, 16, 14. So this is actually measuring with ridiculous accuracy uh, every minute. So, okay. so for the first time, we've got respiratory rate uh, as a reliable clinical measurement. And then we are also measuring, we know your body position. So again, unlike a, a wrist wearable, we always know what's front, what's back, what's left, what's right, what's up and what's down because this is stuck to your anterior chest wall and we yeah. know this skin side. So what's cool is every minute we can tell if you're sitting up or we can tell if you're laying down. If you're laying down, we can tell if you're laying on your back or on your stomach, on your right side or left side. We can tell if you're sleeping at an incline, which Unfortunately, when people develop heart failure or breathing problems, 
they tend to sleep on a stack of pillows because it's hard to breathe when, breathe when they're laying flat. So with that, then we're also able, as we talked about, to measure the symmetry of each step that you take. Mm. We're able to measure the strength, the forward exertional effort from the left leg and then the right leg huh. and then the left leg and the right leg. So we can actually quantify step strength. And, you know, it doesn't sound that interesting until you realize, you know, people on chemotherapy are losing muscle mass. And so if you see their step strength going down, yeah. they're headed for trouble. Um, if you see uh, someone who's had a hip replacement, you want to see their step strength getting better over time. There's all this beautiful, again, we have the benefit of a, of a 4K movie. We have this longitud longitudinal view rather than a single snapshot of information. And so we can watch what's happening. What's the trend? Yeah. In many cases, the trend is more important than the absolute value. It's amazing how much you can infer from a small set of, well, I don't want to say a small data set because it's not a small data set, but like a, a few different parameters, you know? Well, yeah, that's the other beauty of this is so many things have been what we call one dimensional. You know, we have this, this, what I would call a composite picture. Mm. You know, when you have an infection, your temperature goes up, but there's a, you know, you might've gotten in the shower. That doesn't mean your temperature went up, right? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't mean you have an infection. You're, so we also have heart rate. Well, if you really have an infection, your temperature goes up, but your heart rate goes up with it. And actually you have to breathe faster when you're infected. Mm -hmm. So we have this cross-sectional composite picture to be able to see uh, multiple independent variables that correlate to a particular circumstance. And that's where the, the real power of, of AI, people overuse mm. that word, yeah. but we have, we're kind of a two-headed beast because we have all this cool wearable sensor hardware, but in our cloud, we're actually watching all this rich signal, multiple parameters, and the trending of these composite pictures. So it, it, it's, it's a really, really exciting time in healthcare yeah. uh, and what we call the, uh, you know, we're going to be moving healthcare into uh, a, a, a practice of, of uh, you know, intelligent care because mm -hmm. we haven't been very smart about healthcare over the past uh, hundred years, to be honest with you. It's, it's more like it's, sick care. It's sick care. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, the other sad statistic is our healthcare system itself. I don't know if you know this number, the third leading cause of death of an American citizen is our own healthcare system, you know, because we actually make a lot of mistakes mm. and and it's underreported. We know that it's at least 700,000 people per year die from mistakes and errors that we make, but there's even more deaths because we're just too stupid to, to realize what's happening until it's too late. Mm. 
right? We don't have yeah. we don't have good data, or the data that we have, we're not able to process it in order to see what's coming until it's too late. Yeah. Well, that's a sobering thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the cool thing is this changes everything yeah. you know, because now you have you have real data that's high frequency multiple parameters and the cloud can actually process i mean here's another statistic in the intensive care unit in the operating room all of those monitors are generating about a million pieces of data per hour a million per hour. What human, doctor, nurse, or anyone could make sense of a million different pieces of information in an hour? Not a chance. Right. So the most we can do is glance up at that number and that number, that number. In fact, the Institute of Medicine published a paper concluding that the most from a cognitive capacity perspective the most the amount of data that can be consumed and assimilated in order to make a decision is about seven pieces of data seven <laughs> for a human for a human yeah. to take into account to make a you know a decision whether it's driving a car or anything right yeah. you know, think about all the stuff going on yeah. you know could you take into account seven different things in order to make a decision about stopping or swerving or your surroundings? I mean, and so when you think about medical information, there's no way you can make sense of a million pieces of data, but the computer can. Yeah. Computer can watch all that stuff and it can run these algorithms in milliseconds and then say, hey, idiot, do this. <laughs> And frankly, that's what our smart cars are doing. The cars are watching all these sensors right. and the speed of who's in front of me, what's nearby. And if it sees a scenario that's a potential crash, it will apply the brakes faster than human response time could figure it out and hit those brakes. Yeah. That, that's a whole topic right there, <laughs> whether or not and when um, you know computers will drive better than we can. I think just their, their ability to see everything all at once is, gives them a, a huge leg up on us. Um, well, we've, we've already shown in medicine, um, this project I think started around 2013 and they were comparing mammography breast, breast uh, for, for breast tumors, mm. the computer reading the mammogram versus the radiologist. And in 2013, the radiologist was better. 2014, the radiologist was better. 2015, 16, 17, 2018, the computer was better. <laughs> and that's what's happening now. The, 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 the AI and the, the computer uh, algorithms are now becoming better at finding uh, a, a breast tumor than, than the radiologist. So um, I think you're gonna see a lot of this type of thing happening. Yeah. Now you still need the radiologist, sort of like in the cockpit of a, of a 
commercial jet. The autopilot is flying that plane, but you still want a couple of pilots in there just in case, sort of like, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, what is the name? Sully? Yeah. Or, yeah. Sullenberger. Sullenberger. Whatever his first name was, I forgot already. But uh, yeah, he made a brilliant decision in, in, in you know, split seconds. The autopilot would have crashed that plane, mm -hmm. but he was smart enough to use good judgment and land that thing in the Hudson. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's not an either or proposition, but all of these systems are going to make us better and smarter, I think, especially in healthcare. Uh, well, cool, Jim. Um, I appreciate your time. And, and, and uh, this is just super cool. And I, 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 I'm curious um, where these things are going to go in the future. You're already working on the next generation of it. Like, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, you see, do you ever see one just being implanted, like inside that can monitor like stuff in the blood and whatnot? Uh, you know, people that have pacemakers and defibrillators it's it's actually collecting a lot of this data without them realizing it oh, okay um i think people are really excited about the fact that we can get all of that data without implanting <laughs> yeah it's kind of the other way around i i i like a lot of other people would be pretty nervous about something being implanted unless you really really needed it sure right? sure that's kind uh, of the point with the ai and everything is it can infer all that stuff from what you can get on the outside that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. and and uh, you know and you can take it off when you you know when you don't want that data i mean you know truth is this can see when you're breathing fast and your heart's beating fast and we know your body position so we we can see <laughs> We can when, you're, see. when you're having sexy time, we can we can monitor that. There, there you go. <laughs> see what kind of lover you are. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate it. Um, is there any place that people could go to learn more about this? Or I mean, this isn't something people can just go buy. This is more of like a, something their doctor gives them, right? Um, right now, it's primarily direct. Uh, it's it's through your doctor and hospital. We did actually have some direct consumer programs. Uh, we had countries that required during the, the, the hard uh, uh, pre-vaccine days of COVID, uh, you, had to, you had to go online and purchase our sticker and wear it for seven days. And then we would actually generate a report mm. that went to like for St. Lucia to go to St. Lucia, you had to wear a sticker. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so we can see if you're having early signs of an infection. Um, so we have had some direct to consumer programs and uh, it's likely you'll see this becoming uh, available uh, at your local uh, pharmacy and other places, uh, so, you know, sometime, uh, hopefully later this year. Okay. Oh, cool. Cool. But you can that. go to biointelligence.com and, and, uh, tell your doctor, uh, you know, that this is what you want for you or your family. Hook me up. Give me the sticker. Got it. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Um, thanks a lot again. And, uh, oh, I look forward to seeing you in the near future, right? In April. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have some fun. Good. Love All it. Right.
thanks to Jim Malt for sharing his time with me. He and his team at BioIntelliSense are doing some groundbreaking work, and I think it's just super interesting where all this is going uh, and what the future is going to look like because of all this. Uh, if you want to learn more about what they're doing, you can find them at BioIntelliSense.com. This episode was produced by Kimmy Britt, edited by Bray Brown. I'm Joe Scott. You can find me at Answers with Joe pretty much everywhere on the socials. Of course, my YouTube channel is Answers with Joe. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Please do share this if you thought it was interesting and a nice review on whatever podcast player you're using right now really does go a long way. But until next time, have a good one. Go out there and start some conversations of your own. Take care. <laughs>